We, uh, you can be seated, dismiss the uh, school-aged kiddos to head toward the back. Let's see, who's teaching them today? All right, we got Deloaches and Phillips escorting them to the back. So as they're doing that, let me invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. I'll say every week, um, say it again, we'll have the scripture on the screen, at least most of it. It looks like uh, when the air came on, it kind of tilted our screen. So you uh, OCD people out there, you're just going to have to calm down today. Um, It's not going to be perfectly aligned. Um, But I want you to follow with me in the Word. So if you've got the old-fashioned paper version, or if it's on a device close to you, I want you to turn there. We believe that we know who God is through the person of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And then we know who Jesus is through the revealed Word of God. And so that's why it's important for us to dig in. And that's why we do. Um, We finished the book of Jonah uh, last week. And, um, and we also had the uh, thunderstorm of all thunderstorms. So uh, if you couldn't hear Weston as he wrapped up our series because of the thunder, um, I encourage you to check out his message. Um, and I want to celebrate that we got through an entire book of the Bible in five weeks. That's pretty amazing for us. Um, and so those are all on our uh, podcast if you want to check those out. I thought it was a great series. Um, really spoke to my heart. God did a lot in my heart through it. Um, today we will look at Palm Sunday. Um, I was hoping to preach through uh, consecutively all the events from Palm Sunday through Thursday, um, but uh, when I hit like 13 or 14 pages of notes, I know I couldn't do it. So we're going to hit a few of those events today, but we also have this. Now, we only printed kind of one of these for every family, but this is just a short devotion um, walking through this final week um, of the life of Jesus um, before um, the cross and before Easter. And so I encourage you, they're real short, take you five minutes to read them. Um, also in our Lent guide, this is our last week of Lent, and we are going to um, fast from some sleep. Um, my encouragement is not... Uh, for you to lose, um, to stay awake for seven days. My encouragement is for you to set the alarm 15 to 20 minutes earlier. And so we've given you the devotion in hand. Uh, We're encouraging you to take some, uh, one of the guys, Bill Hybels calls it chair time, um, that you have an appointed place and time with God that you're going to meet him and um, put that on your schedule, set the alarm 15 minutes earlier or stay up 15 minutes later, whatever is easier for you to do. And, um, and let's hear from the Lord in that. So we're going to start Palm Sunday today, and we're going to go through this episode. Let me say a quick prayer for us, and then we'll jump into the passage. Father, again, we um, humble ourselves. We ask you to speak to us. We believe your word is living and active. We know that our hearts um, can be wicked and deceiving, and so we need your truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your truth to us. Through your word, it would speak to us. It would convict of sin. It would encourage those who are weak and weary. It would point us to you and who you are and that we would have joy and peace because of um, what you've done for us. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. So this is the most uh, sacred week of all the year. And I want to caution us against running through it at the same pace of life that we normally run through life. I don't know about you. Uh, Already today, I've been asked five or six times, Pastor, how was your week? And I told them it was busy. 
and it was busy. This was one of those weeks, and then I look back, and Ashley and I will talk about this as we walk through busy seasons. Well, this busy season's almost over, but always only to be replaced by another busy season, because most of us in here, we live busy lives, and we cram a lot of things in uh, to our lives, and my caution to us is not to run through this week at the same pace as all other weeks. So if that means that we set an alarm a little earlier to spend some time contemplating all that God has done for us through Jesus, as we look at Jesus in this last week of his life, um, I hope that pausing and preparing, uh, that preparation will shape our celebration um, next week. When we direct our mind's attention and our heart's affection toward what actually happened during this week, over 2,000 years ago, it will make Easter much more celebratory and I pray much more memorable than just the candied eggs and the pastel clothing and whatever, um, whatever we've made Easter out to be, the baskets, the hats, um, that sort of thing. Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday, and it's probably a passage you're familiar with. I'm going to jump in. It's bookended with Easter, and a lot happened this last week in the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, as I began to study, I didn't know this, that over almost half of Mark's gospel is centered around this last week in the life of Jesus, almost half of it. We certainly don't have time to look at everything this morning, but I want to encourage us to take a few minutes every day as we read through this. But even today, let's think about this first episode or this first scene. Let me read it to you, starting in uh, Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find the colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a, at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him that Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We see this continual episode. And a lot of times on Palm Sunday, we look at this one. But as I really studied and, and learned some things even this week through study, if you pan out a little bit, this almost all of chapter 11 is one episode with several scenes in it. And we ask ourselves this question, what is Jesus trying to accomplish on Palm Sunday? And I think there are a few lessons for us here if we really pay attention to what's going on. This one episode includes Jesus just having raised Lazarus from the dead and all the celebratory things that went with that at Bethany. He's going over the Mount of Olives through the east gate of Jerusalem. He sends his disciples ahead to get the colt. They're fulfilling some prophecy. People are cheering. In the next scene, he curses a fig tree, then goes into the temple, turns over some money tables, makes a big ruckus there, walks back by the fig withered fig tree and gives a lesson on prayer and forgiveness. 
So I'm going to look at these events and I want to ask ourselves what this means for us some 2,000 years removed from them. And let's look at the context in which they are written. And I think we're going to see several things maybe we've missed the first time, at least I did. First, the triumphal entry. You may have that heading over, um, over this passage. Those headings are not inspired part of God's word. They just help us to know kind of what section we're in. This has been called the triumphal entry for this reason, is it mirrored a Roman general or military official entering into a city. When a Roman general or military captain would return from war, they would make a big deal about it. He would get the biggest, baddest horse and chariot he could. He would be in the front with maybe a crowd of people welcoming him in. Behind him would be the generals. Behind them would be the soldiers. Behind them would be all the spoils of war that they brought back, even sometimes slaves. And it would be this huge processional that would walk through the city. And as they would walk through the city, people would all gather to see the returning, mostly looking for their family members to see if they indeed returned from battle. And that was the triumphal entry. And we see that Jesus' triumphal entry marries it uh, in some ways, but some ways it does not. Normally, this would be a great symbol of strength. But we see Jesus riding in. We see the crowds. We see the people cheering. We see people waving palm branches. And several of the other gospels mention this idea of the palm branches, why we call it Palm Sunday. These palms were a huge symbol for the people of Israel. Nearly every coin that we find from that era, they had a palm branch on it of Israel. It signified the national life of Israel. They were used in the dedication of the temple. They were used in the inauguration of their leaders. Basically, what they're doing with these palm branches is welcoming in their king. But we see that Jesus is not riding on a Clydesdale or some other mammoth horse. He's riding on a donkey. Something you just don't expect. And I think we see a lot of that in scriptures. We read through it because we serve a God who's bringing an inverted kingdom, one that we're not maybe used to seeing. And it really points to two things about him. And these, I'm just going to mention these. First is that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. I don't want us to see this. Zechariah had prophesied that Jesus would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt, the fall of a donkey. God had promised a conquering king would come. Remember that promise goes all the way back to the book of Genesis that one day a Messiah would come to make right all the things that had been wrecked by sin and destruction. This promise, as early as Genesis, woven through all the covenants of the Old Testament, is something that the nation of Israel had looked forward to for thousands of years. Can you imagine the longing hope, not just, hey, you know, some of us have already booked our summer vacations, and it's a month away, and we're just ready if we can just get there. Or, or maybe uh, my kids are counting down the end of school year, right? And they are already counting them down. And it's just 20 days away or 30 days away. Can you imagine longing for something for thousands and thousands of years? And that's the people of Israel. We're waiting this new Messiah. Now, Jesus didn't talk a lot about being the Messiah. But his actions would prove to everyone else that he was indeed the coming king. He let his actions speak for him. Every good Jewish boy would have memorized the Torah and many of the Messianic passages, especially through Psalms, one of which included this prophetic passage in Zechariah 9. Let me read it for you. I think I have it on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we see this prophecy in Zechariah that the coming king, you'll know that he's the one because he's going to enter town riding on a donkey. But there's another prophecy in Ezekiel that says that he's going to come into Jerusalem from the east gate. And that's exactly what he's doing there from Bethany over the Mount of Olives through the east gate. Jesus is the prophet from Bethlehem, the one born of a virgin from David's lineage, coming through the east gate, riding on a donkey. Any Israelite would have known exactly what's happening. One commentator says of this, it's one thing to pee in the pool, everybody does that. It's something entirely different to do it from the diving board. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing, is making this point very loud and clear that he is the Messiah King. But he's not the Messiah they wanted. And that's why you're going to sing the cries of Hosanna, change to the Christ to crucify him very shortly, as Jesus, in a very profound way, is going to make this point for them. That he didn't come as the warrior king the first time, but as the servant king. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. It's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying that your Messiah is here. A way that they would inaugurate a new king, the nation of Israel, would be the palm branches, would be the laying the cloaks down on the dirt road as the king would march over them. So Jesus is the promised king. He is the one that had been, all of history has been looking toward. toward. It's the king that was coming before the foundation of the world. But another lesson I think is here, and it's seen in Zechariah 9, and of course in all the life of Jesus. The glory of Jesus is found in his lowliness. Again, can you imagine the strategy of Jesus meeting with his disciples? And he said, okay, boys, it's time. We're going to ride into town and everybody's going to know I'm the king. And so they start clamoring for, okay, what do we need? They've got to go find the horse and the chariot. He said, no, I want you to go get a donkey. Find just the lowliest thing that you can find. And what I want to do is I want to go into town and I want to go into the temple as a lamb who is silent before his slaughter. And certainly Peter at that point, at some point in this whole discussion, must have said, but Jesus, this is not the way to do it. You're the conquering king. See, they didn't want necessarily salvation from sin. They wanted a political leader. They wanted, they wanted a new king to come in and overthrow Rome. They didn't care necessarily about their sin. They cared about their comfort. Mirrors a lot of the attitudes I find in my heart at times. But the glory of Jesus is found in his lowliness. Until this, there had never been a picture of servant leadership. Never even the idea. We find it nowhere in history of this idea of servant leadership. Outside Christianity today, it's still pretty rare. Leadership is typically about dominance, isn't it? Leveraging your power, pressing down on those underneath you. But not with Jesus. He led through humility. He led through serving. Paul would later say of him in Philippians 2, that famous hymn, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you imagine 
how humiliating it was for Jesus just first to become human and then to serve the humans and then to die for the humans. There are just no words to communicate what's adequately happening here. This is, this is scandalous humility. A creator serving his creation, a leader serving his followers. And this is, again, not just humility, just in simplistic form. It's crazy humility, scandalous humility, unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. But even before that, Jesus didn't just serve those who followed him. He served those that would betray him, a savior serving his betrayers. Jesus just didn't say that we should love our enemies and bless those that persecute us as it was the lesson we needed to learn. No, his life looked like this. He actually lived this out in a very visible way. Less than a week later, hanging on the cross, asking God to forgive the very ones who are killing him. Jesus is bringing into great clarity what it means to really be a follower of his. Not that we would lead through our dominance, but that we would lead through our humility. One of the great litmus tests of every move of God or every follower of God is humility. To see how God is working in them to break them. To carve out the sin and pride that is in them. Jesus had been calling his disciples, follower, his followers to be disciples, to take on his way of life, to adhere to his practices, and ultimately to look like him. So what does this first scene point us towards as a church? That Jesus was the promised king and that Jesus was the humble king, certainly. It points us towards scandalous humility. A few days later on Thursday night, Jesus would give us a much greater picture than just riding in the town of a donkey of what it would mean to really take on this humility as he would wash the disciples' feet. Talk about a Savior serving his betrayer, washing the very feet of Jesus, the feet of Peter who's so arrogant, on and on, scandalous humility. As a matter of fact, the church has referred to the Thursday of Holy Week, maybe you've heard it, as Monday Thursday, the term Mondi comes from a Latin word that means commandment. The term refers to the commandment given by Jesus at the Last Supper, as we read in, during the scripture reading. He says in verse 15 of John 13, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Not what I have done, but as I have done it to you. The major theme from this passage is that God is near to those who humbly serve him as worship. Our faith is supposed to be extremely practical. Isn't it how you treat people, how you spend time, what you value is predicated on how you view God. And for some of us, Christianity for so long has been this philosophical idea. It's been just doctrine. But Paul says of the gospel that it doesn't just come in word, but the gospel comes in power. Many of us have not experienced this life transforming truth we might love to argue the finer points of eschatology but let me know if the gospels really grasp your heart by asking this question are you willing to get your hands dirty serving people are you willing to wash people's feet who don't deserve it because certainly we as sinners do not deserve all that christ has done for us it's not enough to have the theology of christ's humility we need to be humble. It's not enough to understand the grace of God. We need to be gracious. 
Jesus told his, follow, his followers there in John 13 that they would be blessed if they do these things. And this is what the gospel does in our lives. It continually changes us, transforms us, transforms us into the image of Jesus. David Wells says this about humility. I like this. Humility has nothing to do with depreciating our, ourselves and our gifts in ways that we know to be untrue. Even humble attitudes can be masks of pride. Humility is that freedom from ourself which enables us to be in positions in which we have neither recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation and yet have joy and delight. It is the freedom of knowing that we are not in the center of the universe, not even the center of our own universe. Look at the next scene with me. Starts, the next scene starts in verse 11. He entered in Jerusalem and went into the temple. He looked around at everything. It was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany was just a few miles from Jerusalem. It would be the little suburb, the home of a lot of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where he had just performed this great miracle of raising him from the dead. Him and his disciples are making this trek every day as Jerusalem would have been packed. Normally a city of about 40,000, swole to a quarter of a million at least, maybe more. Verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I read this passage several times as a teenager and even growing up, I guess, as a little kid. And I always just thought that Jesus was a little mean. Like, what did this fig tree do to him, right? He just, just didn't have any figs yet, Jesus. There's something that we should learn here. Jesus walks up to the fig tree as we just read and cursed it. <clears throat> a little context. You can read this passage in several of the other Gospels. It gives you a little more information. But the context here is that the leaves on the fig tree in this arid climate would come out early. In early spring, and the figs would come out too, but they look more like uh, pine cones than they do figs. They're hard as a rock. You can't eat them. The figs would be maturing all summer, and then early in the fall, they would be ripe to eat. And so the picture here we see is Jesus walking up to a springtime fig tree, knowing that it's not going to have anything on it, finding nothing worth eating on it, and cursing it. We ask ourselves the question, why? Because Jesus is acting like a prophet of the Old Testament. He's using this visible illustration to communicate this very practical and real truth. You remember the prophets of the Old Testament and some of the visible illustrations they use. Someone like Jeremiah standing outside of Jerusalem, smashing clay pots as an illustration, pointing to what God was going to do to the city. Or Ezekiel, who made this large headstone and wrote the name of Jerusalem on it in clay and set it outside the city, and then he laid in front of it with his back to it for months to communicate and illustrate how God had turned his back on them. And just as a prophet, the greater prophet, Jesus chose a fig tree. The fig tree, while at a distance, looks like something that would feed you. But on closer inspection, there's nothing there to eat, 
no real fruit. I think the key to understanding the fig tree is found by looking at where it sits in this episode. It's no accident that Jesus leaves the fig tree and walks immediately into the temple. Let's look at that. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned some tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. Jesus walks into the temple and finds a very <clears throat> excuse me, similar situation as the fig tree. This great temple that's been under reconstruction by Herod the Great for 60 years looks amazing from a distance. Can you imagine the impressiveness of the design? Literally breathtaking, covered in gold and pearl and marble and all these fine jewels. It would have, it would have been unlike maybe anything that we've ever seen. But upon closer inspection, Jesus determines that it has nothing within it that would feed you. This is part of Jesus that we don't talk about very much. I think I love the sweet Jesus who calls the kids to himself, right? That sweet Jesus who's the picture my grandmother had in her dining room of Jesus holding that little lamb. Maybe you've seen that with his face kind of glowing. I like that picture. Jesus who loves little kids and welcomes lambs. This is like Jason Bourne Jesus. I don't know what's going on here. He goes into the temple that he had seen the night before. Remember, he went to kind of peek in. He comes back, he's making a scene, and this is going to really expedite his march to the cross because the religious leaders hated it. Literally turning over tables. Got money and pigeons flying everywhere. The point of the temple was to make it a house of prayer, Jesus says. And you have made it a den of thieves. You have made it where robbers hang out. This accusation ultimately changes everything for Jesus. Now to understand the temple was the focal point of everything for the Israelites. Because it was a sign that God has established a toehold on the planet. It says in Psalms, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Heaven and earth are not two separate spheres, they would argue. They, they actually overlap and interlock, and the temple is where heaven meets earth. This is what all the Jews believe. Events like sacrifice and dedicating and naming infants and worship took place in the temple because the temple is the place where heaven invades earth. And when heaven invades earth, supernatural things happen, sins are forgiven, Nobodies become somebodies, outcasts into a relationship with God. Human lives are given divine purpose. Israel believed that God decided that in this one little place, people could get a glimpse of what it would look like for heaven to actually invade earth. And so they kept this hope ongoing and alive. That what they saw in part in the temple would eventually be fulfilled in completeness with the Messiah King. 
And they were waiting for this day when God's occupy earth began to expand beyond the temple. Then Jesus came and he was presented as an infant to God in the temple. And he returned as a young boy, if you remember the story, saying, I had to be in my father's house. What does such a dramatic scene tell us about the character and nature of God? What does it mean for us today as a church? Would Jesus want to come in here and throw over our pipe and drapes and our uh, table and cases? Like, what would it look like? It certainly means that whenever the church lives for its own benefit, when we become inward focused, it really brings out the righteous anger of Jesus. When you live for yourself, it's an anti-gospel picture. When you, as the church, not talking maybe the church as an organization, but as a group of people who are covenant together to living in biblical community and, and being on mission for God, when we, as God's people, begin living for ourselves, we've become the fig tree. We have this appearance of life. We have this appearance of this connectedness with God. We have this appearance of, 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 of being Christ followers. But when people get close to us, what they normally see, and this is certainly true of a lot of the church in the West, they see no life. They see no life at all. When people really know you, when they know you, do you have this real full dependence upon God? Or are we just playing these religious games? There's actually a movement among millennials today, people who are in the spotlight, who say they love Jesus, but they don't want to be involved in the local church at all. And it's really sad to me because the church, we're not perfect. We're all flawed. The people of God gathered together should be identified by what Jesus says here, by humility, radical humility, and prayer. This unrelenting dependence upon God. Unrelenting. Man, God's going to do something. But what's happened to a lot of us is we've become so calloused to depending on God. We, we, live in, we live in the West, most of us middle class, maybe a little a couple notches above middle class. We've got some money in a savings account. And what's true of us, church, is most, what's true of me is that most of the time I depend more on my skills and my abilities and my bank accounts Maybe we would ask ourselves this question. When is the last time that you followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit into a place where if God didn't, didn't show up, it was going to be a scary thing? When is the last time we listened to the voice of God and put ourselves, we gave so much money away that unless God showed up, we didn't know how we were going to provide? When is the last time we lived lives that were marked by this unrelenting dependence upon God in prayer? Jesus comes into the temple and he said what was meant to be this heaven-touching earth, this intersection where supernatural things happen, you have dismissed that. What was meant to be a light to the Gentiles, you have dismissed that. As a matter of fact, you've put up a wall that you wouldn't even let the Gentiles through. Jesus said, I come to t I've come to tear that down because that's not what the church is. This might be some social club, but this is not the church of God. His accusation was sobering. Ultimately, what got him killed? Jesus leaves the temple. It's our third scene, fourth scene. Walks back by the fig tree. Look at it with me in verse 20. 
As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, with exclamation point. Like that little spell you cast, like, really worked. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. I love how Jesus talks back um, to the disciples. Jesus answered them in verse 22, have faith in God. Can you imagine Peter scratching his head like, what does that mean? Jesus, I was showing you the fig tree, and it's withered, and you're coming back with have faith in God. Jesus continues, verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone... So that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. I wish we had time to really get into this. Talk about prayer. Maybe we'll have to make time in the coming weeks for some of this. But as a scene of withering trees and throwing mountains, Jesus brings up things that would certainly be impossible for us to do in our flesh. I've never spoken to a tree and it withered. I've tried to grow several trees and they withered, but I've never spoken to a tree and it withered. I've never said to a mountain, be moved, and it's been moved. Jesus is using these impossible tasks so that we would realize that for us, these things would certainly be impossible, but for God, nothing is impossible. This is crazy talk Jesus here. Of course it is, Peter. If you have faith in yourself, but not if you live by faith in God. God is working even now to renew all things. Remaking, recreating his image in us, conforming us to that image. He's expanding his kingdom of light and dispelling the kingdom of darkness. And we as his church get to play a part in that. Peter, learn this lesson. If you miss everything from the past couple days, Peter, learn this lesson. Don't make this life about you and your strength. Don't limit what God wants to do to what you want to do. Don't limit what God can do to what you can do. Don't limit the strength of God by looking at your strength, Peter. Have faith in God. Can I ask us, church, do we live lives that are marked by this incredible faith that God has not just mentioned or suggested to us, but said is the secret to actually living out the Christian life, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, without faith, Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God. As a matter of fact, when we look at Hebrews 11, As we look at this long line of people who've gone before us, this great cloud of witnesses, this hall of fame for all these believers who had such great faith, you see again and again that God stacked the decks against them so they could not do it. They couldn't do it in their own strength. He changed hardened Pharaoh's heart so Moses couldn't go in there with any eloquent words, which he didn't have anyway, and convince Pharaoh as a matter of fact. God stacked the decks against Moses so that when all the people were leaving, they weren't saying, look at what Moses did. What were they saying? Man, can you believe what God did? Again and again and again that happened in the life. As you read through, go home and read through Hebrews 11. It's a beautiful chapter of all that God did to flex supernatural muscles in the lives of these early believers. And I believe the same thing that he wants to do now. 
As we look forward in Holy Week, as we close, Jesus' association with the temple was so important for us to get all that's happening here. Ultimately, it got him killed. Jesus began to say and do extraordinary things. He said in Matthew 12, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. He said in John 2, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Speaking of his body. This is staggering. This would have been blasphemous to an Israelite. He was talking and acting as if the whole idea of the temple was ultimately to point to him. He was talking as if everything in the temple pictured was actually coming true now that he was around. He was claiming that in him, in his life, in his teachings, in his body, in his future death, in his resurrection, heaven had finally invaded earth. And not just within the walls of the temple. What happens when heaven finally invades earth? As we said before, sins get forgiven. Outcasts get taken in. Nobodies become somebodies. The poor in spirit become blessed. Simon becomes Peter the rock. Human beings receive this divine purpose to go into all the world and preach this beautiful gospel. The cross seemed to put all such talk to an end. But then came the story of the resurrection, amen, in which the ultimate invasion of earth by heaven happened. So just a few thoughts as we walk away. I know we've moved through some of this quickly. Jesus' life was not some abstract subject to be debated by experts. Jesus' life is an invitation. Heaven is now overlapping earth. Anyone wants to get in on it can People invite Jesus into their lives. That's the welcome. Hey, come on and follow me. And heaven starts invading earth through them. That's what the picture of the church was in Acts, of heaven invading earth, not through Jesus. As he left, he said, listen, it's better for me to leave than to stay because when I leave, the Holy Spirit's coming. And when the Holy Spirit came, it, it, it supernaturally emboldened the church and they began, be, began to proclaim the gospel even in unknown languages at times. These radical things of people converting Converting to Christianity. Within just a few months, the gospel travels all the way to Asia Minor. Within a few hundred years, it becomes the world religion. How could such things happen when you look at the lives of these early followers? Because the Holy Spirit empowered them with boldness to live out this truth. And that's the invitation for us on Palm Sunday. To trust them with our lives. To notice that he's the king. To notice sometimes he rides on a donkey when we think he should be on a Clydesdale. Sometimes he goes into the temple and instead of, you know, doing what a good little Jewish boy does, he throws over the tables. We just don't understand everything. Sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts us to speak up in a situation that might be awkward or difficult, but we follow him in this. Sometimes he prompts us to give money that we've been holding and we don't know how we're going to make the bills and pay the bills if we, if, we, if we follow him in this. And he's saying, listen, there's an invitation Trust me. Trust me as king. I think maybe we've grown too intellectual sometimes. The gospel really is pretty simple. And Jesus invites all of us to trust him. He invites us in. Hey, just come follow me. 
That's the invitation I want to leave us with to trust him with our lives. His death on the cross as payment for our sins. So much more than that. That he would live in us and through us and that we would live for him. As we walk through this week, we're fixing to get ready to take communion. As you, we walk through this week and maybe as you read through this guide or something else, would you ask God what he's inviting you to? What's... What does life with Jesus look like? Not just salvation, but certainly that. And some of you have been playing religious games a long time. It's time for you to step across this line of faith and trust him. I know you've got a long list of reasons why you're just not so sure. That's what faith is. It's just trusting him when we can't see the other side all the time. But specifically, what is, what is he inviting you to? What's he inviting you to give up or to give? Who's he inviting you to speak to or to love, even in this passage? What great things are we praying for? Who have we limited our forgiveness toward? So a few days later, Jesus would be in that upper room with those disciples, washing their feet, taking this very last supper that's an ordinance of the church that we still practice today, very near and dear to my heart. So we're going to continue to do that today. The Bible outlines a few cautionary things. One, that the only people who should partake in this are believers in Jesus who desire to live in obedience to him. And So if you're not there yet, I'll be standing in the back. I'd love to talk to you more or pray for you. And Paul cautions us to really examine our hearts. Confess sin. Receive that forgiveness. Jesus told those disciples, as you partake, proclaim my death again and again. And so that's what we do. We'll have a good Friday service this week, and we'll focus more on exactly that. But let me pray for us. Our communion service will come forward. As you just get quiet with God where you're at, would you, would you really pray that earnestly? God, God, what are you leading me to do even now? Who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to ask forgiveness from?